What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Rachel Luba, the founder of Luba Sports and the youngest female agent in baseball history. In this conversation, we discuss how to become an agent, what role data plays in negotiations, Trevor Bauer's $100 million deal, the role of social media, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart garments clothings called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go or on a run. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it, like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. But here's the best part. Whoop is now offering 15% off of their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30-plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, U.S.-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code JOE. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Rachel, thanks for doing this again. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. So I want to talk about a bunch of stuff today when it comes to being an agent, obviously player contracts, the lockout and all of that. But maybe let's start with like a 50 foot view of your career and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I grew up as a gymnast from the age of two through UCLA. 
I knew I wanted to work in sports. Wasn't sure until I got to college really like what exactly I wanted to do in sports. The more I kind of narrowed it down, kind of realized that I want to I'm passionate about helping the individual athlete. Maybe that was just because I was always an individual sport athlete, but that was really where my interest was. So started thinking about, okay, well, what about, you know, representing players and being an agent? And they always tell you to talk to people in the industry where you think you want to work and kind of pick people's brains about their experience. So the first agent I spoke to, a friend of mine, he was a baseball player at UCLA, connected me with his agent. And I went into his office and he got a little background on me. So he knew about me. He kicked his feet up on his desk, kind of leaned back in his chair and was like, look, seems like you know what you want to do. So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. He was like, you're a girl. And just stared at me. And I was like, yeah, I'm well aware. And he was like, well, what I'm saying is you're not really welcome in the industry. I, at that point, was a little confused and turned off by this conversation. And you probably could tell by the look on my face. He's like, look, I'm not saying you can't do it, but the reality is it's a boys club. So I was like, all right, is that it? And he was like, I mean, if I have any advice for you, it's go to law school. You're going to need a law degree because if you want any chance at having any credibility whatsoever, you're going to have to have a law degree. That was pretty much the end of the meeting. I walked out of there, though, and texted my parents. And I was like, I'm going to apply to law school. I honestly credit this agent in particular to being the one who made me want to go into baseball specifically. If he had told me, and it was a great industry, these are the various paths you can take to get into it. I probably would have walked out of there and said like, that was awesome. You know, now I'm going to go talk to a football agent or a basketball agent. But I've always kind of had the personality type that if you tell me I can't do something, it's probably exactly what I'm going to try to want to do. So I decided baseball was the sport I wanted to go into. So Went to law school, pretty much taught myself everything about baseball. I didn't grow up like a huge baseball fan. Gymnastics kind of consumed my life. Fast forward, I guess I was an attorney at the MLBPA union for a year, helped them with their salary arbitration cases, and then started my own agency. Okay. So just for some context for people who may not be familiar with the business or how the agent side of things work, is it normal to go from law school to work for the league and the PA side for the Players Association and then an agent? Like, how does that normally work for most agents? So most agents either go to law school. Um, many don't. A lot of them are former players. Um, they're, you know, guys who maybe had a little time in the minor leagues. Maybe they played in college, whatever it is. Some go to law school. Baseball is actually the one league that They have, I think, the lowest requirement in terms of education in order to be allowed to be an agent. So if you look at football, the NFL has actually the strictest, and that is largely because there's been a ton of situations in the past where players in football have been taken advantage of by agents, whether it be people that maybe were just close friends with them growing up that wanted to like, hey, let me, you know, help you. And for whatever reason, football has been the sport where there's been a ton of just occurrences where they've been taken advantage of. So to be an NFL agent, you have to have some sort of master's degree, some sort of like post-college degree. Most usually are lawyers. And then for the NBA, I believe you have to just have a college degree. 
NHL, I think is similar. I think it's a college degree or it's like a two year college associate's degree. And then baseball, the only requirement is you have to graduate high school. So like many, no, don't even have any sort of postgraduate degree. So is it fair to say that you essentially knew at the time that you were facing somewhat of an uphill battle based on conversations that you had previously? So you, you almost went above and beyond. I'm going to get the law degree. I'm going to work for the league. And basically no one's going to be able to knock my experience. Right. I heard over and over again, all the reasons why I can't do it, why it's going to be a problem. And so my thought was like, all right, look, like, Hopefully one day it's not going to necessarily be like this, but, you know, I'll be as qualified as possible. Like, let me get experience at, you know, getting experience at the MLBPA is something that really no other agent has. And it's incredible experience. And it's just a completely different perspective that no other agent really has to bring to the table. But yeah, that was kind of the thought process behind it. Yeah. And then you open, for those that aren't familiar, you open Luba Sports, which is the vehicle that you are the founder of and you do all of this out of. What was the thought process on doing that versus going to work for a large agency or going to work under someone else? So initially that was never the plan to go start my own agency. The plan was I wanted to be a baseball agent. And I got to the point where I was so sick and tired of One, like knocking on doors and trying to convince these agents that my gender wasn't going to be a problem because I can't tell you how many of them would just tell me straight up, like, I don't know how this is going to work with you being a female. And I started talking, I had a lot of friends and, you know, connections with players that were in the league and I would ask them about it and they never seemed to have a issue or problem with it or didn't see the issue. So that kind of got me thinking as well as, kind of in the beginning, I think when everyone was so critical of my gender, I think it made me view this entire industry through a very critical lens as well. And there were kind of two main questions that I asked myself. One was, is there something that these agents, these male agents are doing that I can't do because I'm a female? And then the second question was, are they doing this the best way possible? And the answer to the first question was no. Like, I don't think there is anything that they're doing that I can't do simply because I'm a female. And then two, I started realizing like, no, I don't think they're doing this the best way possible. And that was from a lot of talks with different players who have various agents and kind of their experience, as well as, you know, interning for an agency while in law school and getting to really see how these agencies operate. And then being at the MLBPA and seeing how, all the different agencies operate and the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think it was the experience I got, the training I got in law school where, you know, they train you to kind of work with billable hours and charge your clients for the work that you do. So, you know, I didn't reinvent the wheel with like my fee structure or anything like that, but I looked at the amount of time that a lot of these agents were putting into working on behalf of a player in comparison to the fee that they were taking a lot of times. And it didn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense, at least in terms of being beneficial to the player. It's great for the agent, but it it didn't make sense to the player. So I kind of had this idea of like, all right, well, I think there's a better way to do it. And so actually when I finished working at or towards the end of working at the MLBPA, I you know, was starting to think, okay, well, I want to go work in an agency. I want to be an agent. And 
at the time, there was a big agency that needed a ton of help with their salary arbitration. And one of the attorneys, veteran attorney that's been at the MLBPA for a long time, recommended that they actually consider bringing me on in a consulting kind of position to help revamp their salary arbitration process. So I thought about doing that. I'm like, that's a good kind of transition into being an agent and working for an agency. So I started talking with them for a couple months, kind of negotiating the terms of what this role would look like. And my thought was, okay, I'll do this for about a year or so, help them fix that and then go work for an agency. And as I started talking to them more and more, and, you know, as we were progressing, they kind of looked at it and sat back and some of the higher up people at that agency were like, we've done this for 35 years. We've, you know, had a system we've used and we've never had a problem. So I don't really see the value in spending money to bring on a consultant to fix it now, which to me, it was a red flag to begin with. So I'm like, all right, because something worked 35 years ago doesn't mean that it's working now. And you clearly saw that this past arbitration season that it didn't work, which is why they were looking to bring me on to begin with. So that was a red flag to begin with. And then they brought up the idea of, well, you know, why don't we just bring you on as an agent? And at first I was like, wow, like after all this time, someone's finally offering me what I've been striving for. And they were like, yeah, you know, we'll train you and you can just be like a normal agent. Like we don't need you to help us with our salary arbitration. And it kind of became clear to me that they were missing like the actual value that I really could provide for them and their agency in particular. And I started to realize like, it felt like they saw me for this token female. And they kept telling me, they were like, this could really set us apart because every agency offers the same thing. It's mostly a bunch of guys that offer the same services at the same price. And they try to find little ways to distinguish themselves. So it felt like, okay, these guys felt like bringing me on, they found their distinguisher. They got this female. And I just felt like, all right, if I'm going to be anybody's token female or whatever, like I'd rather be my own. And I I kind of made a scary decision at that point to turn down that job and, you know, spend the next several months working to just open up my own agency. Yeah. I love that because I mean, for anyone who doesn't know you, I, and correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, but I believe you were the youngest female agent in MLB history at 28 years old. And whether it was that year or the following year, you negotiated the largest average annual value deal in MLB history at $40 million a year. So the qualifications are clearly there now on the resume and it's like, hey, none of that was really necessary. So I totally get that. What I'd love to talk about is when it comes to kind of your fee structure, you talked about not reinventing the wheel and not doing anything revolutionary, but you did do something that was a little bit different. And in that regard, my view is there's a few different things, right? So DeAndre Hopkins in the NFL negotiated his own deal last time and agents in the NFL, maybe they charge 1%, 4%, 2%, 3%, somewhere in there. There's a soccer player in Europe, Kevin DeBrin, who used data. Basically, he went with his father and a lawyer and used data and said, hey, here's what I think I'm worth. Great player, got a $100 million deal. I believe most MLB agents, they still do this fee structure where they take a percentage of each deal. You said, hey, I'm not going to do that anymore. I am going to charge a flat rate for the year. And then basically I'm going to do billable hours. Is that correct? And then maybe talk me through your thought process on why that's better for the player versus the average fee structure now. Yeah, that, I mean, I looked at it as I want the incentives to be aligned. I think it makes sense that you should pay for the value of the service rather than the value that the player himself created on the field. And I think there's a couple of reasons why it makes a lot of sense now in particular, but 
I looked at it as, okay, now that we've kind of moved into this era of data and analytics, and I started talking to players and they would tell me even during, you know, their free agency process where they would say, you know, look, I had all these different teams that essentially came to me and my agent and offered us around the same thing. Now, some people will say, oh, well, it's that's because, you know, MLB teams are colluding and they're all just talking amongst each other, right? And what to give this player and it's not a true open market and we have to do something about that. But the reality is, is like, no, MLB teams got smart. MLB teams now are run by a bunch of Ivy League kind of nerds and no disrespect to nerds, like I'm a nerd, but they just, they started using numbers and math. And it turns out that numbers and math is pretty accurate. And it's pretty good if you're doing it correctly at determining a value of something. And so these front offices now are looking at players. They accumulate and study so much data on these players, and they're able to develop these algorithms to kind of predict what the future value is of a player. And so it's not crazy that they're all kind of coming back with the same number. So then you look at it and you say, okay, well, if every team is essentially determining your player's value, then why is your agent getting a 5% because baseball agents are charging, it's pretty universal, it's four or 5%. Why are they getting that four or 5% cut on, on the contract? What are they doing that is deserving on a 300 plus million dollar contract to get, whether it's like 15 million or whatever, what are they doing to earn that value? It's pretty crazy. And then you look at, so what is what they're doing for the $300 million player? How is it any different than what they did to negotiate for the $2 million player? The player's getting that contract because of the performance that they did on the field. You know, I tell people this, I said it a bunch after Trevor Bauer's contract, but if you gave me any other starting pitcher that off season, I could not have gotten them $40 million in a season. And that's because... (laughs) It was largely Trevor's performance that allowed us to be able to negotiate that. So I kind of look at it as the player should be paying for the value of the service that I'm providing. So if I charge kind of billable hours of the amount of time that I put in, because there's some contracts that might take 20 hours to do, and then that's it. And there are players who are super low maintenance that don't require a lot. They don't want a lot from their agent. Why are they paying such a huge percentage or the same percentage as the player that wants you to, you know, set up their car when they land in Chicago and then hire a nanny for their kids next weekend and get them the coolest pair of shoes they want right now, whatever, all of these things. It, to me, it just doesn't make sense. I think there are a lot of players too. If you talk to them, they're totally fine paying for a service, but they want to feel like they're getting value for it in return. And right now, I mean, up until this point, there just really was no other option. This is blanket across the board how all agents charge. So I think it's helpful. And this is how industries, all industries evolve is someone comes in and says, all right, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. And I think it takes people a little time to feel comfortable with it and want to jump in and buy into it because people are always skeptical as to why has something not been done before? There must be a reason, but a lot of times it's just because nobody's had the incentive to do it differently. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I've always enjoyed looking at your approach from afar is how customized it is, right? When you look at other agencies, especially ones that I've seen, a lot of it is just kind of cookie cutter. You have the same kind of script for every player, no matter if they're the best player in the league or one of the bottom tier people. But ultimately, I think we're headed to a world where customization matters a lot more. Everything that we do in our daily lives is much more customized to the individual. So I'd love to hear just kind of your thought process on that. And have you seen over the past year or two years, are more agencies moving towards this? Or do you think it's just going to be a really long and drawn out change because it's been going on for 30, 35, 40 years? I don't see it changing that much. I think in general, agencies are more fighting the change. I think agencies are slowly starting to use social media a little more, which has been something like a big thing that I've pushed, at least like just for me and how I operate. But when it comes to just the overall service that they provide, I don't think it's changing that quickly. When it comes to, you know, Luba Sports and what we do and kind of customizing the experience, you know, I ask my clients, like, what do you want from an agent? What's important to you? And some of them are, you know, look, like I just need, if I give you a call about a question I have about the team, or I need you to kind of communicate something to the team, like that's what I need you for, or I need you to help me negotiate this contract. And that's it. I've got a guy who he does not like social media. He's very, you know, I just want to stay out of the spotlight for the most part. I just need help with the team stuff, negotiating stuff. And that's it. I've got other guys. They tell me, look, like I want to blow up my brand. I want to have a big platform, but I don't know what to do. So for them, a lot of it is help me figure out how to capitalize on this opportunity I have when I am a professional athlete to grow my brand. But players all want different things. And I think it's important to be able to give them that service. I think traditional agencies though struggle with that. And I saw it firsthand. I mean, even with Trevor, when he was at his former agency, he came in one day during the off season, he had a meeting with his agents. He said, I want to be in five years, the most internationally like recognizable name in baseball. And then he himself put together an entire plan. He's like, I just need help like executing this. And that should be the agent's job. I mean, it's a huge agency with a ton of resources connected in the media world. I mean, that's essentially what the agency overall is, is a big media kind of conglomerate. And really, they were able to come back and within a year, they got him like an appearance on MLB Network, which let's be honest, MLB Network was reaching out to every agency asking players to come on. And that's a common theme that I hear over and over again is when it comes to kind of exposure and exposing players to the media and getting them exposure. A lot of times they just wait for whatever falls in their lap. So you always get the card deals, you know, the Panini deals, the top deals, the MLB Network appearances. But in general, like they're not going out and trying to get anything proactively. And if you think about it, it makes sense because had this agency gone above and beyond and poured a ton of resources into Trevor to make him this really big name, what about the guys like Kenley Jansen, let's say, who they represent, or John Carlos Stanton, who went and hired a separate marketing agency to do his marketing entirely because he wanted extra attention in that area? They're all paying the same percentage as Trevor. So they're going to look at it as, okay, well, 
how do you know that these guys don't want the same kind of attention? And so it becomes difficult, I think, for the agencies to service all these guys in the same way and make them feel like that they're being treated equally in a sense when, I mean, they're all paying the exact same percentage. So in theory, they should be treated equally, but that doesn't financial sense for the agency. So I think this kind of customized more pay for pay for the service makes much more sense because if you want a ton of attention, we can give you that and you pay for it and you're going to get the value. But if you don't want it, like you're not paying for it. Yeah. That's where that customization comes in a little more than a traditional agency would provide, I assume. But I would love to know kind of just how these negotiations work. So you can use a client of yours for an example, if you want to or not, it doesn't really matter. But just talk me through kind of start to finish of like, you said before that teams have a general idea of what they want to pay each player. Do teams reach out to you specifically at the start of free agency and say, hey, we're interested in your player. Let's talk numbers. Just talk me through kind of that whole process. Yeah. So it really depends on, I guess, who the player is, the caliber of the player. If they're the top market guys, you're much more in the driver's seat. You're kind of like screening the calls. You know, all the teams will kind of reach out and say, we're interested. Can we get the medicals? And so you, that's like the first thing to kind of happen is you send out to any team that's interested, they get cleared to view your player's medical file. From there, you start the courtship and communicating. And for last year, it was largely, it was basically all Zoom because of COVID-19. So it was a little bit different, but you start having these kind of longer Zoom calls with the team. You get the GM, you'll get, whether it's like the hitting coach or the pitching coach or, you know, various kind of guys in, in the front office. And usually the player at first isn't involved in that. And then, you know, as things kind of progress, you'll set up a time for the player to talk to the staff as well. But it's definitely a little different than there are many other players where you're having to proactively reach out. You're trying to sell your client and it's a lot different. You're reaching out to all the different teams, trying to, you know, kind of get a gauge on what their interests and their needs are, but it's, it's definitely a different process. And then, yeah, it just kind of, unfortunately people get frustrated with baseball off season because it is very long and drawn out. This off season obviously was very different because of the CBA. And so there was this like added time pressure of this deadline, kind of fake deadline, but a deadline. So you saw a lot of deals get done quickly and it was exciting. But in general, teams aren't in a huge rush and the longer they kind of wait for the most part, the better deal that they usually feel like they're going to get because the closer you get to spring training and when your player doesn't have a job, they start thinking, okay, like I'll come down on my price a little. And teams know that. So most times like they make you feel like, you know, we're in no rush. We've got to fill all these different areas of our roster. So they're much more laid back about it. And it just, it ends up taking a while. Yeah. So with Trevor, you guys obviously took a different approach when you went with a shorter term deal with a higher average annual value relative to his age and kind of where he was at in his career and his performance that I think people would have expected instead of that $300 million deal or longer. What was the thought process on that? And like, what did teams say when you went to them with that? Were they confused? Did they not like it? Did they like it? What was it? So our client came to us said, this is what I want. I want a one year deal. And we were able to talk him into what if we gave you three one-year deals or something where, where you have a player opt out after every season. And what that essentially gives you is basically like an insurance policy every year that if something happens, right, you're not a free agent. 
And look, like at the end of the day, I think most, most agencies wouldn't do that deal. They would do everything in their power to either say, look, look teams. And I've heard this happen plenty of times where, you know, not specifically with this kind of short-term deal, but sometimes they won't tell a player about an offer, which is unethical and wrong, but they're a lot of times looking out for, for their best interest. They want the guaranteed security as well of that, you know, percentage income. So they're not trying to do shorter term deals, but for us, like I'm not incentivized necessarily that he needs to have the longest deal ever. because I'm not getting that 5% commission on a huge 10 year deal. So he told us, this is what you want. We talked him into the insurance policy kind of thing. And we went to teams and basically had to tell them this is what was important to our client, the flexibility. And then it was a really difficult position to be in, to be honest, because teams were one teams felt like, okay, well, we understand that your client maybe wanted that in prior years, but he just won the Cy Young. So like, we'll offer him seven years, eight years. And it's a very awkward thing to tell them, like, that's not what he wants because they're not used to that. That's what they believe every player wants. So getting them to believe this is for real, like this is important to him. These are the reasons why. And we've got to structure something similar. Eventually we kind of got them to understand that, but then it was difficult because you've got a guy at the very top of the market who basically when you go into free agency, the way that agents get their players deals at any part of the market, but the top of the market too, is they're going to take the most recent and the biggest contract. And they're going to say, we want to beat that. So we want that plus a little. And it's how, if you look at Every top free agent, that's how they get their deal. They do a little bit more, a little bit better than the last guy. No one's reinventing the wheel with like what this value is because they're just saying we want what player X got plus a little, whether it's plus another year or, you know, another 20 million or whatever it is. You've got Strasburg did it with, let's say, looked back at Granke and you've got Cole looked at Strasburg and said, I want to do a little better than that. That's how agents build. So when we're going in, we're saying, okay, well, let's look at the top of the market. The top of the market was you've got Garrett Cole at 36 million. Well, Garrett Cole's getting 36 million for nine years. Believe it or not, like it was very difficult to get teams to buy into or feel comfortable saying, well, we need significantly more than Garrett Cole. And they just keep coming back to, I mean, They'll compare Trevor to Cole and say, well, you know, we can't really give him that much more. But when you look at it, if he's getting fewer years, you absolutely have to pay him more because the team is getting the benefit of not one, having to pay that money out for all those years, but then also being able to use that money to fill other spots throughout all those years. So that was probably like the biggest struggle because then you got to figure out and you have to convince the teams. It's obviously the teams know that the shorter the deal, the AAV should be higher, but they're not going to give you like a free pass. You got to prove to them with some sort of explanation rationale as to what number is fair. And we kind of were able to develop an algorithm to show what, you know, a guy at age 30 season with stats like Trevor's, what that one year would be worth. And The reality is that like the true value of these guys on one year at the top of the market 
no team could pay it. No team could pay it and put a team behind them on the field. And so obviously then you got to kind of come down off of that, but you still have to be able to kind of explain why the number that you're saying, that was definitely the most difficult part. But once we were able to create a new, a new market to value a player who is at the top of the market on a shorter term deal, it's incredibly beneficial for future players. And you saw, I mean, Scherzer even acknowledged it in his press conference that he's able to build off of another contract because look, everyone says like, oh, but he's 37. And, you know, of course he's going to do a short-term deal. Absolutely. His age just guaranteed that he was not going to be able to sign a 10-year deal. But then he still has the same problem. He's at the top of the market. How do you value him? He's not looking at Cole's contract because Cole is younger signing a 10-year deal. He's got to look at, okay, I'm a top market pitcher and I'm going to sign a short-term deal. Who do I look at? He looked at Trevor's. He saw, okay, over two years, Trevor was guaranteed $42.5 million. I want to beat that. I want $43 million over three years. And that's what he did. Yeah. Trevor takes a longer term deal. That number's lower, obviously. And then Scherzer has nowhere to go off of. But I also loved how you said that. And people said, no, 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 no. And then he literally said it in the, he literally said it in the press conference. Right. I think I still get, I mean, do you know how many people will slide into my DMS or comments and be like, ha ha, like, tell me about how like you created this market or for an old, like 37 year old player. And I'm like, I mean, I had guys on radio shows saying like, it's laughable that they think that they created a new market. And I'm like, all you guys are doing is just proving that you don't understand how contracts are negotiated. Like everyone got so hung up on, he's a 37 year old. It's totally different. Like, no, he's a a 37 year old. The only thing that the age did was it just ensured that he's not going to get a long-term deal, but he still has to now figure out how do I place myself in the market? And he looked right to Bauer's contract. He also did it with the team that Bauer was in the running to go to, who lost him at the last second. And they were, I think, very hungry to show that they would spend top dollar on a pitcher. And it was perfect. But yeah, Scherzer acknowledged it in his press conference. He's like, I I realized that, you know, I got my contract because of players before me. Yeah. And I'm sure you being a female at the top of the game and mostly a male dominated market. I'm sure you've been dealing with this for a long time, but I don't think it ever probably gets easy. How do you deal with people on Twitter and trolls and stuff like that saying things when you're, you're obviously outspoken on Twitter and stuff, which I think is very smart when it comes to social media and building a brand and the agency that you're doing, but there's backlash too on the flip side of that. So like, how do you deal with that personally? It's tough. It's something I've had to work at, especially more recently. Social media is a blessing and a curse. I've kind of gotten to the point where I'm trying to use other platforms a little more. I think Twitter is a really toxic place. The amount of DMs that I get of people who are, you know, whether it's they're very in support of the things I do or whatever it is, it's overwhelming. But the funny part is, is like, no one says a lot of the stuff publicly because it's more, I guess, like, You get more attention and more eyes if you say awful things. So it's always like the few people on their burner accounts with their 10 burner accounts tweeting from all different phones or whatever accounts saying the horrible things that 
just got to the point. I was like, all right, well, this is, it's not good to be looking at any of this stuff. So in general, I have someone that kind of goes through and at times points out things are important that I need to see or I should respond to. But for the most part, I log on now when it comes to Twitter, if I want to tweet something and then I get off it because I just think it's an awful app these days. Sorry, Twitter. But the biggest thing I've had to remind myself is that number one, the minority usually is the loudest. The ones that want to say all the absurd things, they're the ones for the loudest. In general, like the majority of people don't feel the way that the loudest people on Twitter feel. And nobody is ever taking shots at somebody below them. So you got to kind of keep that in perspective. Yeah. If you got haters, you're doing something right. So I like that. All right. Last thing is the lockout. What's going on with the CBA? Like, how does this all end? Yeah, I think it ends with an agreement that's not much different than what we already have, which is a win for the teams. I think, to be honest, what happened was in the beginning, baseball proposed, baseball loves the status quo. They're great with it. This is what the owners want. The players don't. The players want to see change because financials and things like that have changed over the years. And so baseball should evolve with that, with analytics and all that. The way everything's changed, the fact that the CBA has never really changed is concerning. I think baseball looked at it as, well, let's propose something drastic and outrageous that the players will never want. But we're going to say, look, here, we'll change your system. Let's do it differently. They proposed something crazy. Obviously, the players were like, well, heck no. Like, that's not what we want. And so I think now they're just not going to talk for a long time. And then when the season starts becoming in jeopardy and now we're going to miss out on games, I think MLB will come back and say, here, we'll give you art. We'll give you like one or two little things. And it'll basically be the exact same that it was before. And I think baseball or, you know, the players will be told like, look, we got you these things and they're usually inconsequential nothings and it'll be kind of the same. Yes. It's interesting to me, especially when it comes to the MLB, because people often forget that the Players Association, they work for all of the players, right? Everyone within the league. And when it comes to the NFL and some of these other leagues in the MLB, like majority of those players are not the top tier getting paid 40, 50 million dollars a year. They're lower income players or salary players that want to go play. They don't want to miss games and want to miss paychecks and want to do these things. So is it fair to say that like one of the things that I don't think a lot of people understand with baseball is if you look at the valuations, they've gone through the roof for all these teams. They've drastically increased over the last decade or two decades. But especially over the last decade, the average salary of a what we'll call like a median player hasn't really changed that much. I think it might even be down in, it, in some of It's the, dropped yeah. in the last couple of years. Yeah, which is really crazy to think about when you look at the valuations and what some of these teams are making, not only on tickets, but merchandise, but TV rights and all of these things. So like, how does that change? Is that just something that like everyone has to go in and say, hey, we're willing to do a lockout and miss games? Or is it something that the MLB in this case you think will give you a little bit of an increase on? I think it's tough. It's tough because... The way that I think teams have kind of hid behind it or, you know, made it seem like, and maybe to fans, it seems like, no, things have gone through the roof. And that's because if you look at the top of the market guys, yeah, the big players, their contracts, right, are skyrocketing. They're going up. I mean, people are breaking records every year with free agents, but there's 
a huge group of players who aren't even getting jobs anymore. The middle class, the middle class is getting squeezed out. And you've got the guys who are under team control who are, I mean, these guys are really in their prime. This is when they are performing their best. And when in the past, they would get to take that performance and basically profit off of it in free agency because free agency was much more about in a way, paying players for what they did in the past. Now, teams aren't stupid. They're not signing the Albert Pujols contracts anymore in general because they realize that's not really efficient and effective. So they're not paying those. And now you've got guys who aren't making any money when they have some of their best performance. And then once they finally hit free agency, they're old, they're maybe on the decline. So like, they're not going to make any money. So I think it's, it's tough because we just keep seeing and the public keeps seeing the huge contracts, which we as agents want that too. We want players to be able to keep pushing that and making a ton of money, but it is affecting the middle class. And I think that's, that's the part that gets lost amongst everyone. Yeah, I think that makes sense. All right, last question I got for you. As someone who has, quite frankly, just dealt with a lot of bullshit, what was it like getting Trevor the biggest deal from an average annual value in history? Like, what was it? Did you guys celebrate? Were you just like, hell yeah, I did it? Like, what was the reaction? There's a lot of emotions. It was a huge relief, especially because of, in his situation, it was coming off of, right, the shortened season, which made it extra difficult. Some of the biggest... The biggest teams in the game who are the biggest players, the biggest spenders were kind of sitting the season out and not paying. They didn't really want to spend money. So I made it extra difficult. And the timeline kind of of when he ended up signing it was, I mean, it wasn't one of the latest. I mean, you look at Harper and Machado signed in, in spring training, but it was getting close. So the commentary and stuff that I started seeing a ton of towards the end was, at times, like you do start to kind of question yourself and you're like, am I making a huge mistake? Like, are we, did we just screw this whole thing up? So it was a big relief to realize like you trust the process, kind of ignore the other voices. Like they have no idea what's going on and they're irrelevant. It was also, I think, reassuring that there was, I remember when I first launched my agency, Ken Rosenthal put out an article about Trevor switching and there was some anonymous agents that commented on my fee structure and Ken Rosenthal even commented on it and basically said that agents aren't really concerned because while he might save a few bucks during salary arbitration with this type of model, ultimately, like you need a big agency with a ton of experience to be able to negotiate the big kind of deals. And that's where it's going to hurt him. And I think this was incredibly like reassuring to be reminded of and to kind of show the world that you can <laughs> charge a different fee structure and be just as effective. I love it. Yeah, it was certainly a proving moment for sure. Like, I think everyone looked at it and said, okay, this might work. Okay, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate, again, you coming on. Where can we send more people to follow you, check out your agency and all that kind of stuff? I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok, YouTube. I got a website. I'm pretty much- You're everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> I love it. All right, thanks again for doing this and we'll have to do it again soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me.